Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. She's Australian born, but it's here in the U.S. where Judy Olean's academic career has been shaped since receiving her PhD at the University of Wisconsin. Last year, Olean left UCLA's business school, where she was dean after 12 years, to become the new president of Quinnipiac University in Hamden, Connecticut. Today, Judy Olean joins us in studio. How does she hope to shape Quinnipiac University, a school many know through its polling institute? In her inauguration speech in May, Olean said, quote, universities sit at the intersection of major societal fault lines that include access and affordability versus declining public support for education and research. Currently, resident students pay $64,000 a year for tuition, room and board, and other fees. At that cost, is Quinnipiac helping its grads succeed in the workforce of tomorrow? You can join our conversation, too. The number 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. And today you can find us on Facebook Live. Just search Where We Live, add your question under the video stream. And as always, you can tweet us at Where We Live. I want to welcome Judy Olean to our studio again, president of Quinnipiac University. Welcome to the show. Terrific to be here, Lucy. Thank you. I mentioned uh, that uh, you uh, started your career uh, after you got your PhD in the University of Wisconsin, but you're Australian-born. So tell us about uh, your path to the United States. Well, uh, it was clearly an accidental path. I uh, left Australia and ended up back and forth between Israel and Australia during the last years of my high school. Spent Um, a year and a half or two in Europe as an au pair and then traveling, wasn't quite focused, went to the Hebrew University in Israel, in Jerusalem, and was a psychology major, ended up as an industrial psychology major, and then for various personal reasons, landed in Madison, Wisconsin, and was lucky enough to be adopted by the American higher education system, which supported graduate students, allowed people from other countries to come and study. And I've been here ever since a huge beneficiary of higher education and the embrace of people from other countries. Mm. Um, I, I can't tell you that I had any plans on becoming a business school dean, a president, or even an academic. But, it, you know, life takes funny turns. Uh, you have an uh, interesting family story. I understand your parents were survivors of the Holocaust. Uh, can you tell us about them? Uh, well, my parents were very affected by the, the Holocaust, and they were sole survivors of uh, large families. My father was kind of Lithuanian, Polish, depending on what day of the week it was. It was either Russia or Poland. My mother was uh, Polish, and they married in 1938, and my father saw the clouds on the horizon and emigrated, was lucky enough to be able to emigrate to Australia. And he said, if it works out, I'm going to send you a permit. And he sent my mother a permit, which was dated the 3rd of September, 1939. For the history buffs, 
They will know that the Nazis invaded Poland the 1st of September, 1939. So my mother uh, spent over seven years uh, really uh, escaping the Nazis and as a refugee in southern Russia. And he didn't hear from her for seven years, but somehow waited. And somehow she made her way out of Russia, uh, which was already behind the Iron Curtain, and was the first civilian on a boat of Anzac troops that came back from Europe after the war. And they reunited what was then Perth, Australia, where the boat arrived. I grew up in Melbourne, Australia. But they hadn't seen each other or talked to each other for over seven years. And everyone, both of them, were sole survivors of their families. And yet they made a life for themselves after those seven years, which was probably like 100 years Mm -hmm. in terms of what happened in history. So, yeah, they had a very interesting um, life together and history. My father died when I was quite young because by the time I was born as a, as a third in a family, um, he was, I think he was over 50, mm. all 50, something like that. Uh, your experience growing up, did that influence your interest in academia? I'm just curious. Well, my mother uh, was a, um, a, a head of school as a young age of a Hebrew school in, in Poland and they actually met at the school board in the town in Poland where uh, she was involved in in the school. So I always think that somehow education is baked into my DNA, though if you talk to my teachers along the way, they would certainly question that. I did not appear to be this natural student who was particularly focused. But <clears throat> I've said, and I think I said that, um, at convocation at at Quinnipiac, <coughs> excuse me, that a, a professor can change your life. And I was doing my master's degree at Wisconsin. I frankly had no intention beyond my BA of doing anything, but somehow I landed in Wisconsin. And as I said, I was embraced by this great American higher education system. And a professor at the end of my master's said, have you ever thought of doing a PhD? And the absolute truthful answer was no. And who would have thunk that somebody like me would do a PhD? But he encouraged me, and he totally changed my life. And I say to our great faculty at Quinnipiac, you know, you will change somebody's life, and you do that every day by just asking that question or taking an interest. Uh, in studio with me is Judy Olian, uh, the president of Quinnipiac University. Uh, she came into the job last year after working at UCLA for 12 years as dean there of their business school. You can join our conversation if you have a question for President Olian, especially if you are a Quinnipiac student or faculty mem- member, maybe you're an alum, or maybe you live in Hamden, Connecticut, where uh, the university is located. Uh, that number, 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook Live today. Just search for where we live, and under that video stream, you can add your question. Uh, UCLA, UCLA is uh, a very well-known uh, university, uh, four times larger, at least, uh, than Quinnipiac University. So what attracted you here? I was very happy at UCLA, and as, as you know, um, UCLA is uh, an awesome institution, And before that, I was at Penn State and at Maryland, all great public institutions. 
And I have to admit that I did not know a lot about Quinnipiac when I was approached in the search by the search committee. And I started learning about the institution. I knew about the poll. Um, and I started learning. And I, I give great credit to my predecessor of 31 years, John Leahy, as the president, and the many people who have been at Quinnipiac for so long and built this institution as on a trajectory that's like a rocket ship, really, starting from a very little school that focused primarily on teacher education to now what is a very comprehensive university, eight professional schools and a college of arts and sciences. And uh, it has been remarkably nimble and agile and very, very focused on students and preparing them for lives of significance and careers of significance. And our institution isn't necessarily known as an industry that's particularly agile and adaptable. And I felt the more I learned about Quinnipiac that this was such an important niche in the higher education marketplace of the future as we need to adjust institutionally, as we have a whole new mission around lifelong learning, that we need to keep educating people of every age, of every color, of every background, every nationality and geography, because that's what higher education has to morph into. And many institutions are incredible at what they do, but are not particularly adaptable. And I found the trajectory of Quinnipiac, its incredible outcomes. I think it's uh, one of the highest. It's, it, in fact, it is, according to Zillio, the number one institution in Connecticut and even nationwide in 10-year uh, outcomes from enrollment to 10 years out uh, from, from an employment perspective in terms of career success. So this is an institution that really prides itself on being student-centric and adjustable and in touch with where the puck is headed, if I'm allowed to use a Quinnipiac analogy around hockey, um, around where the marketplace is, is, is moving and, and what is needed for careers of the future. And we have to recognize that we don't know what the careers of the future are going to be, but we know that we have to be constantly adaptable and helping our students be curious permanent learners, system thinkers, and able to adjust around career needs. So you've been at the university for one year now, is that right? A little over one year, fantastic one year. And I yes. understand there's a strategic plan in place. We'll get into more details uh, coming up. But when you talk about universities having to be uh, more adaptable, can you give us an example of in the past year, um, some changes you've made that are helping uh, your students uh, be prepared and to continue these outcomes that you mentioned uh, post-graduation? So first of all, our question is, what's the definition of a student? And many universities think of the 18 to 22-year-old in-residence student as the student. And certainly that's a big part of our student body. But we also need to be thinking about the adult learner who must be constantly reskilling and upskilling, given that uh, we are in this radically changing marketplace environment of what technology is doing to the nature of jobs. And so when I talk to leaders of businesses around Connecticut, for example, 
and, and this goes back to my background from the business school world, um, their biggest concern is not just incoming talent as new talent, but the upskilling and reskilling of the bulk of their workforce who have been there 5, 10, 20, 30 years. And the jobs of today are not in any way representative of what they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. Industry 4.0, technology changes, um, the, the nature of social media, and, and think about some of the businesses in, in, in Connecticut, whether it's Indeed or um, uh, Pitney Bowes, which used to be a stamp machine company and now is a logistic solution company, or Stanley Black & Dacker, which is really a very advanced manufacturing company. How do you take the people that have propelled those institutions to success and keep them current? So one of the things uh, we're doing now at Quinnipiac is working closely with businesses and developing now pilot programs and soon, I hope, extensive employee development programs in small bites or in certificates, badges, or even degree programs that they can access very easily around where their companies are headed. So that's one uh, big piece of what we're doing in terms of the collaboration with industries. Another thing that um, Quinnipiac is doing around the University of the Future, which is the label for our strategic plan, is saying, how, how can we prepare students, not for exactly the jobs of the future, because, I mean, one estimate says that 65% of the jobs in 2030 are gonna, haven't yet been created, that they're going to be totally new or the combination of skill sets will be new. So how do you prepare students for 2030 or 2040? Will you prepare them with a mindset for the 21st century? And I think that one of the key mindsets will be around uh, uh, data analytics, that they will be digitally savvy, capable of not necessarily coding or building data sets, but exploiting insights for, from data. And if you don't know that, because we are in the information age where we're absolutely inundated with it, whether you're a poet or a quant, whether you're someone who's an English major, a philosophy major, or an engineering major, or a polling expert, you need to know how to exploit the power of data. So we're looking to have uh, data analytics courses in every one of our schools, whether or not that is core to what you're doing. In engineering or in business, it's core. But how about arts and sciences? Mm. You can join our conversation with President Judy Olian. She is the leader of Quinnipiac University, uh, took over uh, from her predecessor, uh, John Leahy, who led the university, uh, I believe, for uh, more than 30 years. You can join us at 888-720-WMPR or 888-720-9677. Um, I mention uh, John Leahy because during his time, uh, the endowment has grown from $5 million to $500 million. Uh, there were some um, projects uh, uh, that uh, he started, uh, including the Ireland's Great Hunger Museum. And, uh, and this is something that uh, people were concerned about uh, when you came on as president, uh, whether or not that this should still be part of the university. Can you update us on the status of this uh, museum that has a, a very unique perspective at Quinnipiac? Uh, well, the, the Irish Great Hunger Museum is part of our focus on uh, oppressed peoples, and obviously there was a period during the 1800s in Ireland where 
the, there was great hunger. And, and what does that teach us about oppressions of, of societies? Uh, and Quinnipiac has focused on, on that general issue in, in more ways than the Irish Hunger Museum. We have an Irish Hunger Institute, which does research on, on that topic. We have um, the Albert Schweitzer Institute, which is a global focus on uh, populations that are in some way uh, ill-served or in need. And we have an Irish Hunger Reading Room in our library. And we have the art collection of the Irish Great Hunger Museum. What I had um, uh, asked the entire university is, is to look at various ways in which we can focus on the strategic plan of the future while addressing what we currently do and sometimes changing what we currently do because not everything that we've done in the past, for example, majors that we started maybe 30 years ago may not be quite as relevant as they were today, um, as they are today. So what I challenge the uh, Great Hunger Museum uh, to do is to become self-sufficient in terms of its operating costs while the university continues to support what it does in terms of its fixed costs. And most university museums do have a significant philanthropic component to them with membership and so forth. And so it's, it's really a split between what the university uh, is supporting as the, as the museum and what we're asking to be supported philanthropically. And we said we would look to a two-year period to raise that money, and the, and the uh, Hunger Museum is raising money. And we'll see where we stand a, a, in a year from now, and I sincerely, deeply hope that uh, we'll achieve the philanthropic goals that we'd like. Uh, alongside what the university is continuing to support. And so if the um, Hunger Museum is not uh, financially independent uh, by 2020, it could close? Well, we, we will always look to alternatives to preserve the art collection, and we'll see where we stand. Uh, another um, uh, issue that got some attention from the community was uh, the closing of this commercial radio station, WQUN, 12.20 a.m., uh, which I believe was part of the, the Quinnipiac uh, uh, University for some time. Uh, talk about the decision to close that radio station, to sell it off. Well, uh, the... We have a school of communications and, and journalism as part of that. In fact, uh, the current uh, president of, of this of NPR here is is our former dean, um, and it's it's a big focus for us. And we we operated two radio stations: one that was student run, which continues; it's the FM radio station, and the other, uh, which was an AM radio station. And it was heavily supported, frankly, by the university, frankly, by mm -hmm. student tuition uh, dollars. And we looked to see how much involvement we had from the students in that program. And while we have a lot of involvement in the FM station, we did not in the AM. And it was a, a large um, obligation, financial obligation from the university with declining advertising revenue. And we had not seen in the, f in the focused areas of broadcast, any internships in the last two years. So we said, well, this isn't really capturing student interest. Could we repurpose 
uh, the dollars involved to other student purposes and also to more current purposes associated with, with radio. And so we've created a podcast center and actually launched the first uh, podcast on hunger insecurity in Hamden, and that's being run out of the School of Communications. And of course, the FM station continues. The sports broadcasts are available on the internet. Um, we we were very sad to, to close this, but the kind of community support that that one looks for, also including advertising revenue, given that it was fully supported by the university and, and frankly, tuition, unless you see clear student interest in it, uh, we, we really needed to repurpose it for other strategic uses of the, of the plan of the future. Judy Olian is my guest today here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Uh, she's President Judy Olian, a leading Quinnipiac University in Hamden, Connecticut. We're going to continue our conversation with her, uh, learn more about uh, her vision for the private university. And if you have a question for President Olian, you can join us too, 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook Live today. Just search for Where We Live and add your question or comment below the video stream and tweet us at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. My guest today is Quinnipiac University President Judy Olian. Last year, she was named leader of the private university in Hamden, Connecticut, a university that has seen record growth over the last 30 years, with more than 10,000 students enrolled today. Are you one of them, or are you a faculty member at Quinnipiac? What questions do you have for President Olian? You can join us, 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook Live today. Just search where we live. You could also tweet us at where we live. Uh, Alec is calling from Milford. Alex, go ahead. Hello, President. I am a uh, former student at Quinnipiac, class of 92 in marketing and international business. Uh, For a number of years, uh, it's been Quinnipiac's policy to let alumni audit classes uh, free of charge. I think uh, as I'm in between jobs right now, that would be a great way to maybe catch up on the latest technology. However, uh, when I have uh, inquired uh, with the school of whether or not I can take um, online courses at no cost as an alumni in a non-matriculating basis, um, I keep getting uh, an answer while we're thinking about it, and I haven't made a decision yet. And this is <laughs> this has been the answer I've gotten for years. I so essentially, I would like to take uh, to audit um, some online classes and uh, of an IT basis to try and sharpen up my latest skills. So, go ahead, President Olian. Well, it was Alfred, uh, Alec, Alec. Uh, Alec, thanks for calling and thanks for being a loyal alum and, and we want to embrace you in many, many ways and I hope you participate in lots of programs at Quinnipiac. One of the features of our, one of the pillars of our uh, strategic plan, which is called the University of the Future, is lifelong learning and lifelong relationships. And you are certainly a focus for us and we want you to be engaged in lifelong learning. So through our alumni program, we are establishing and already have quite a large portfolio of webinars and, in fact, will make available courses through uh, what is 
uh, an alumni outreach program that'll be around lifelong learning and also engage you in other forms of activity with our students and with our programs. So I'm looking forward to having you be able to participate and I recommend that you connect with our alumni program on what's available already uh, through the web. And, that, and, and I commend you on wanting to be a lifelong learner. Uh, we got a comment on Facebook. Uh, Jamie writes, I'm a Hamden resident who, along with uh, my neighbors, is bothered by the school's broad encroachment throughout several parts of town. Most of all, I'm bothered by the noise, generally reckless driving, and litter many students have brought back to Hamden in the past few weeks. Uh, this is something that has come up uh, time and time again, um, relations uh, between uh, Hamden residents and with uh, Quinnipiac students who live uh, in these neighborhoods. How do you respond to some of those uh, quality of life concerns? Well, first of all, our, um, in fact, our third pillar of that strategic plan, we have four pillars. I won't recite them all, but it's about being uh, very conscious of the well-being of our internal community and external communities. And uh, it, it's it's a huge priority. And, and when I talk to the mayor, he fully recognizes just how important Quinnipiac is for the well-being of the community around economic development, around social activities, around educational and outreach from a community perspective. And that's what we expect all our students to embody, to be great citizens. Um, and, and for the most part, I think that the community feels very much like Quinnipiac is a major positive force in the community. Every now and then, there's an incident of a louder-than-wanted party, um, and we take that very seriously. Uh, you will note that there are some homes that are owned by Quinnipiac, and um, rarely, if ever, does something occur there because we have strong enforceability uh, rights in those homes. What we're doing now is going around and um, our security officers with Hamden Police and with our student outreach people going around, first of all, to the homes where our students live in the community to remind them of their obligation as good neighbors, as great citizens of the community. And we're actually going to the neighbors over the last day and, and over the next couple of days with cookies to all of the neighbors of homes that are in uh, that are being used by students to make sure that the neighbors also know who they can call if there are any incidents. I think there are many more neighbors that'll say our students are great um, helpers. I mean, they shovel snow, they take out uh, garbage for uh, elderly citizens. But if there is any incident of where there's a violation or an exception, we take that very seriously. We're um, not supportive in any way of that, and we expect our students uh, to live responsibly in the community. Um, uh, more broadly, is there an issue with, uh, because of the growth of Quinnipiac, which is a good thing from a university perspective, but in terms of availability of student housing, I mean, how many of your students actually live off campus? Um, we'd love to see even more of our students live on campus. Uh, we actually um, still have some vacancies. But what happens with students is that by the time they get to their junior and especially senior year, they've said, I've had enough 
three years on campus, I want to uh, break out. But the vast majority of our students live on campus or with their families. I mean, often they do it for economic reasons to save costs. And there are just a small minority of students that, that live on campus. And we're investing significantly in our residence halls so that students have every reason to want to stay on campus. The life on campus, the facilities themselves, we've invested significantly this year in renovating from soup to nuts, three residence halls, the Rocky Top um, up on York Hill is getting a, a, a new facelift. So we're um, very much uh, seeing the benefit of having as many students as possible on campus. Um, but some, especially in the senior year, will choose mm -hmm. to live off campus. Many in our own houses that we can enforce, and, and a, a small minority in mm -hmm. some that are rented to them by Hamden residents. You can join our conversation if you have a question for Quinnipiac University President Judy Olian. The number 888-720-WMPR or 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Today we're on Facebook Live. You can also add your question below that video stream. Uh, the New Haven Register reported that Quinnipiac um, is actually spread across both Hamden and North Haven. So we're looking at 700 acres, and 34 of those university properties are actually tax-exempt. And so I'm curious, as you're looking to expand uh, the university, how you're working to balance that with the towns of Hamden and North Haven, uh, because at the same time, um, there's an issue of not being able to get uh, property tax from some of these properties. So let me talk about the complex relationship between a university and its town. Um, at any point in time, the university is a, a huge source of economic growth of the community, whether it's through the students and what they consume. They buy food, they go to the hairdresser, they go to restaurants, their families that come in. The employment base of the community in the university that is really being um, supported through the university. And so that's a tax base uh, that, that is benefited from the university. And all of the services that we consume, whether it's the accountants that we use or the builders that we use to maintain or build properties. So all, all of these services um, at, in Hamden, the estimate is that it's about $2 billion a year in direct and indirect benefits into uh, the community. And so uh, one of the ways in which uh, I think the quid pro quo, the win-win, the is seen is through these economic benefits that come uh, to the community. On top of that, we provide also direct financial scholarships to residents of Hamden for for the students who are coming from Hamden. And I think we're estimating that it's about half a million dollars in scholarships a year or more uh, that is targeted at uh, residents of Hamden. Uh, in addition, uh, we also provide the resources of our faculty and staff and students who go into the community and do public service projects. Every year, 1,500 of our students and faculty go and plant gardens and clean up in the schools, in the libraries, in the community. Uh, our faculty in the School of 
um, communications have done a whole campaign around food insecurity and helping people find those resources. Our occupational therapy and physical therapy students have free clinics every week. Our legal, our law school has a legal clinic. Our entrepreneurship program, doing entrepreneur, our accounting program, helping uh, poor residents file their uh, uh, tax returns every year. So the reason that communities all across the country provide for tax-free uh, uh, situations for universities is because of all of these tangible and intangible benefits that come from having an educational institution in their community. It's a clean institution, it's an environmentally friendly institution, and it's an educational resource that the community benefits from. Think of all the cultural activities that occur on a campus that we love to see Hamden and North Haven residents attend. Theater, music, speakers. So that's the quid pro quo that exists. And according to every economic estimate that I've seen of every university in a community, the benefit is positive. But our local officials in uh, the town of Hamden, have they approached the university uh, looking for um, you know, a better balance? Or from what you're saying, the economic drivers and the other uh, benefits of having the university in the community, uh, that that's um, uh, more than enough? We have a terrific relationship in North Haven and, and now in Hamden. I mean, one of the great ways we partner with North Haven, for example, and we'll uh, do so increasingly with Hamden, I've forged a wonderful relationship with the mayor and with members of, of uh, the community board. Um, we, we've funded two um, school playgrounds in North Haven as a, a means of voluntarily contributing to the community. Uh, I attended the opening just in, in the spring of last year of an ADA-compliant playground in North Haven, and the first kid that mounted all of the, uh, 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 the, uh, of the equipment there was a, a child in a wheelchair. I mean, how gratifying is that, and how wonderful is it that we are able to support those kinds of activities? So I would say that it's, it's really um, seen as a win-win and we have terrific relationships, and I think the community um, is, is really very uh, encouraging, especially the officials, of the impact that Quinnipiac is having. Uh, Pete on Facebook writes, I'm currently a non-traditional student, 31 years of age, with a family of three little ones. And after transferring into Quinnipiac, I have to say the transition was seamless and very welcoming. So let's talk more about how uh, Quinnipiac is reaching out to these non-traditional students. I understand that there was an agreement between a couple Connecticut community colleges. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and I'm so glad to hear that the transfer was seamless. And I see more and more of... Um, quote, non-traditional, who become more traditional students coming into Quinnipiac at, at a later age with families. Um, I was, when I was doing the town hall meetings around the, the um, plan for the future, our strategic plan, one of the people who spoke up was a 71-year-old woman who was finishing her PhD in nursing. And I, I see us for life, continuing to learn, and whether you're 31 or 71, we need to make it seamless and welcoming for our students to be able to transfer, including those who have financial difficulties and may not have thought about four-year college. So 
as soon as I arrived here, I met with um, some of the community uh, university presidents, community college university, including Paul Brody, who was president of Housatonic and Gateway. And we immediately said, we need to make it easier to transfer, and how do you do that? So part of it is the seamlessness of recognizing credits, but part of it is also creating a vision of transfer to the students who might not have thought of a four-year college. So our agreement at the moment with Housatonic and Gateway, and we'll expand to at least two other community colleges where we're in advanced discussions, is that if you're progressing on, uh, on schedule to the associate's degree at these community colleges, first of all, you can take up to three free courses uh, at Quinnipiac or online, uh, one a year, and that gets you in the mold already of taking courses and that credit will transfer easily. If you've got a 3.0 or above and have uh, are graduating from uh, the Gateway or Houstonic Community Colleges with an associate degree, you'll be guaranteed admission into Quinnipiac and the admission fee is waived. We will also guarantee financial aid to you um, what, what does that mean when you say uh, guaranteed financial aid? Uh, because if someone who's not living on campus, you're still looking at, what, $46,000 in tuition costs uh, and other you fees? You are, and um, we, we provide financial aid extensively to our students, and we would provide that also to the transfer students from the community colleges. How much you get depends on what your major is and, frankly, your academic excellence. So the better you are, um, in terms of your GPA and the courses you've taken, the more eligible you'll be for financial aid. We're also going to be teaching some of our courses at the community colleges so that you can see what it's like to be at a four-year college. This psychological hesitation of, can I do it? Can I transfer? Well, you've got the answer. You can because you've just taken one of our courses or two or three of our courses, including at the community college. And then we have a, a weekly or bi-weekly presence of our advisor at the community college so that you can meet and, and talk specifically about how your credits credit transfer and when you're going to do it. One last thing, while you're also enrolled at um, Gateway and at Quinnipiac, you'll have dual enrollment status. You'll actually have a Q card. You'll be able to come into Quinnipiac and perhaps even live in the dorms as you're completing your associate's degree. Is this happening now in the fall semester? So we have, we have uh, Gateway Transfer students. It was signed towards the end of, actually over the summer. So we expect this to ramp up, especially from the second semester onwards. And we really encourage it. The benefits on both sides are huge. First of all, we're providing access and greater opportunity and removing the transition hurdles. But to the Quinnipiac community, and frankly, given our commitment to the community, we feel that this is going to bring in uh, a different population, an older population, a more diverse population that really represents the community of the future that we are part of. And quickly, uh, President Olean, is this a, a unique uh, partnership or other states doing this where they have uh, these transfer agreements between community colleges and four-year privates? I, I think that it's um, certainly not common, and we intend to expand it. I've spoken to uh, the head of um, Mark Ojekian, the head of 
the state college system and community college system where we'd like to expand it as much as possible. I see more and more universities slowly transitioning into recognizing the non-traditional student as a core component of their student body. It's happening slowly. Hopefully, we're ahead of the curve because we're the university of the future. And I think more and more uh, universities are going to try and make it as easy as possible for transfer students mm -hmm. to acquire four-year degrees. Because let's face it, it isn't just that you're getting a competitive advantage with a four-year degree, it's that you might be competitively disadvantaged without one. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Judy Olean, president of Quinnipiac University. You can join our conversation, find us on Facebook Live today, or tweet us at Where We Live. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Judy Olean, president of Quinnipiac University in Hamden, Connecticut. Uh, Leslie's calling in. Leslie, what's your question or comment? Yes, um, my name is Leslie Carson. I'm the career college readiness coordinator at Westbrook High School. It's a new position at the school. My question goes back to the conversation you were having about teaching students at Quinnipiac um, how to exploit data in all the schools across the campus. And so my question is, what should we be doing at the high school level to prepare students for those jobs for the future around, and specifically um, around the a notion of exploitation of the data? And I'll hang up. Thank you, Leslie, for your, for your question. Thanks, Leslie. I think that we almost have to start when kids are kids uh, in, in primary school early on because we are in the digital age and the explosion of data uh, that we have is uh, crippling some and yet providing such insights to others who know how to exploit the data. So first of all, I, I would say that we have to instill the intangibles, uh, the mindset into students that we let them explore their curiosity, that we engage them in fields that they're not necessarily comfortable so that they are interdisciplinary in their thinking, that they are system thinkers. We present them with unstructured problems so that they have to find how to ask interesting questions and explore things in different directions that are not necessarily straight lines because the, the world of uh, data and insights that you need to get is rare is rarely a straight line. You often need to come in from the side. And by presenting students with unstructured problems, you force them uh, to get comfortable asking questions and then pursuing questions in uh, unpredictable directions. In, in terms of data, I uh, always ask people when they come to me and present, uh, let's say, a, a solution, I would say, do you have data to back it up? What kind of data are you bringing to bear to this? And I would say that that's a question that we have to get used to asking our students in any time they present a project, any time you've confronted them with an unstructured problem. Ask them to come up with unique data insights that corroborate their position. And it's less important to come up with the answer as it is the process to the answer. And that's about asking interesting questions, but really getting comfortable with 
the unstructured case study. I used to teach in business schools for a long time. And it would be very interesting. We would have engineers come in and do case studies. And the engineers always wanted to get to the exact answer. And my point was, it isn't so much about the answer as it is how you get to ask the questions that inform the way you reach the answer. We talked earlier about a growth in student population at uh, Quinnipiac University. Um, how are you addressing uh, concerns or the need for uh, the ability to hire uh, more permanent faculty? Uh, there was a report by the 2018 Faculty Senate that found 79% of the university curriculum is actually taught by part-time faculty. We um, obviously part-time faculty is some of the most uh, skilled individuals in in the classroom. So uh, part-time faculty can sometimes be a huge gift also in the classroom with very relevant applied high-intensity learning practices because they're immersed also in the fields. Uh, in addition, we, we do recognize that having individuals who are able to stay with the institution and with the students and invest in student learning and curriculum development over the years is also a huge advantage. And this year uh, we have a total of uh, 26 new faculty, new student counselors, and, and writing instructors. I, I believe that of those 26, 18 of them are full-time faculty in the d different schools, especially arts and sciences, which is the foundation for the first year. We talk about preparing uh, positioning our students as enlightened citizens prepared for careers of the 21st century. To be an enlightened citizen, you have to study history, you have to study philosophy, you have to know the basics of biology before you might go into business or communications or engineering. And so these 18 new um, faculty have been uh, very key in, in informing that foundational uh, structure. We also hired in, in several other areas. And I think that that kind of permanency will also make for permanency of students, uh, the retention of students over three or four years. But can that also push costs up uh, to the students and their families when you have more full-time faculty? Well, a university is investing in the student experience, and that costs money, and that's full-time faculty, that's part-time faculty, it's labs, it's residence halls, it's the student experience, it's counseling centers, it's fitness centers. I mean, the, the mental health, emotional well-being of students requires enormous uh, support. And uh, you'll talk to any president in the country and probably the service that has escalated most in terms of costs on a campus has been emotional and, and wellness counseling uh, given this generation's uh, emotional needs, anxiety, depression, even suicide rates. So yeah, if, if you're worrying about the student as the center uh, of a university, which you should, as uh, the learning and development and preparation of these students for, for the, the rest of their lives, um, costs do go up. What we've tried to do is manage any kind of escalation in costs, and they've been very modest over the years, but increasingly, we're offering financial aid. 91% of our students at Quinnipiac receive some form of financial aid. So it, it, the escalating costs have been offset dramatically by investment of the university and other state and federal sources, but primarily the university, 
in um, reducing the financial burden to students. We just have a couple of minutes left. I mentioned at the top of the show, you are Quinnipiac's first woman president. What does that mean to you, your first year in here at Quinnipiac University? Well, you know, um, I think my perspective on that has probably changed over the years. And when I first started out, and I I think that that's probably true of a a lot of women of of, uh, when I was growing up, and and maybe you too, Lucy, I focused on nose to the grind, get the job done, try and do as best as you can in terms of performance. I'm sure that at some point it was an advantage or a disadvantage to be one of these rare women in, in where I was, but I, I didn't focus on it as much. Today I do, not so much about me, but about what my role, my being, the first president or the first dean who was a woman, um, can do for other women and as a role model and how can I nurture their self-confidence, their aspirations, their um dreams about what they want to be. And if I can do any of that by being that role model, by creating support mechanisms, by advancing women more than they have advanced. And frankly, uh, women haven't advanced as much as I would have expected. I'm on the board of Catalyst, which is the premier think tank for women in business. You would have thought that we would have been way further ahead uh, in terms of women in, in various senior roles. And so I want to do what I can in inspiring other women. And if my role does that, I'm thrilled. Well, I want to thank Judy Olian again for coming in to the show here on Where We Live. She is the president of Quinnipiac University. That's a university in Hamden, Connecticut. Uh, President Olian, a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks. Uh, I really enjoyed it, Lucy. Thank you. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. And don't forget uh, elections happening uh, around the state. Uh, 23 municipal elections. Don't forget to vote. Polls open until 8 o'clock. And join uh, WNPR as we provide election coverage tonight. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel.